Welcome back to a special episode of Conduct Detrimental. I'm Taryn Sharma. I'm joined today by Stephanie Weisenberger and our resident DA, Matt Timpanic. The news yesterday that dropped in a, uh, in a court hearing with a Tuscaloosa police detective, which revealed the involvement of all SEC freshmen, Brandon Miller, was such big news that I thought that uh, it was important that we get the gang together and at least uh, do a few minutes talking about what happened um, for anybody who hasn't been in the know on this and, and would like to know more. I'll start with this. Here's the, the timeline of what happened. And, and these were things that we knew already before yesterday, except for the, the stuff at the end. So on January 15th, 2023, Jamea Jonay Harris, who's a 23-year-old woman, she's a, a mother of a three-year-old boy. She's with her boyfriend, Cedric Johnson, and her cousin, Asia Humphrey. And they are visiting Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and they're hanging out in an area known as the Strip. Tuscaloosa, obviously well-known for being the home of the University of Alabama, and the Strip is a bustling area with bars and restaurants not far from Bryant-Denny Stadium, which is home to Alabama's well-known Crimson Tide football team. Everyone involved in this story went to 1225 Sports Bar, which is on the Strip, and then the, the three parties that were victims of the shooting, Harris, Johnson, Humphrey, they left and went to a nearby takeout spot, a grill, to get something to eat. And at this nearby grill where they stopped to get food, Harris, Johnson, and Humphrey encountered Alabama basketball player Darius Miles and his friend Michael Buzz Davis. Davis was dancing in front of Harris's Jeep, and Harris's mother alleges that Davis and Miles were attempting to talk to Harris. Harris allegedly told the two men that she had a boyfriend. She was not interested in their advances. And ultimately, her boyfriend, Cedric Johnson, steps in and tells the men to move along. Detective Culpepper of the Tuscaloosa Police Department, who testified yesterday, said that the interaction got a, a little elevated at this point. That's how he phrased it. We could think of that as being a little bit heated. It was at this point that Darius Miles texted Brandon Miller, who is the Tide's best player, uh, leads the SEC in scoring, and asked that Miller deliver his gun to the scene. He said they needed his joint that somebody had been faking. And the prosecutor who was asking about this uh, said that they looked it up on Urban Dictionary and that this means that Miles was telling Miller that they had been threatened. Miller had previously that night dropped off Miles at the club, the 1225 club, but left because the line had been too long. So Miller delivers the gun. He gets this text. He delivers the gun, which was in the, uh, the backseat of his car to this point and, and belonged to Miles. And both Miller and another Alabama basketball player, Jaden Bradley, leave their Dodge cars parked in a way that, that prevents any cars from leaving. And I, I've looked at, somebody posted a, a Google images map view of what that particular area looks like. And it looks like an alley. So I'm not sure exactly in terms of, because we're going to talk a lot about intent, right, Matt? Uh, I'm not sure if they were intending to block anybody from leaving. That would be like, you know, Sonny Corleone at the 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 toll booth, like the cars blocking him in. So the news about Miller in the testimony yesterday was new, Matt, and it was not previously known to us. But 
Alabama coach Nate Oates said that they've been aware of Miller's involvement to this point and that Miller is not in any trouble because he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, he subsequently clarified those remarks, said that he did not mean to downplay what ultimately happened to Miss Harris. But the fact is that that Miller delivers this gun, the shooting happens. And to be clear, it was Miles handed his own gun that Miller had delivered to Davis, and then Davis fired the shots, including the one that struck Miss Harris on the left side of her face and caused her death. So 1.45 a.m., police are called to the Walk of Champions at Bryant-Denny Stadium, and that's where they find that Miss Harris is dead in the car. So Matt, I want to start from there. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of evidence here that points to to Miles and to Davis. So in your opinion, those capital punishment charges that have already been handed down, those look pretty solid? For me, what we had yesterday was a preliminary hearing to decide whether or not the case could proceed to a grand jury. That bar is exceptionally low. You just need probable cause, which is one of the lowest standards we had. The judge, of course, allowed the case to continue to a grand jury and denied motions for bail. I think that on the basis on the facts, the capital murder charges are strong. What I initially said in my article I wrote for Conduct Detrimental is expect a self-defense claim from the defense. That's because there is testimony from law enforcement who states that they were told by the victim, the other victim in the vehicle who did not die, that he fired back in self-defense. So then it opens the question, who fired first? So I think Brandon Miller I, is not out of the woods yet, but I definitely think D- Darius Miles is going to be arguing self-defense. Absolutely, without question, because how else would you be able to explain shooting into a vehicle? That itself is what causes it to be a capital murder case, making him eligible for the death penalty. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? What is it about the, the vehicle and the location? So if the ve- an individual is inside a vehicle and it is, it is shot into a vehicle, that itself is an aggravating circumstance making the individuals, the defendants, eligible for the death penalty. There is about nine or ten different provisos in the death penalty statute which lay out what exactly makes somebody eligible. And shooting some somebody in a vehicle is one of those such offenses. Can you explain a little bit, I guess, the difference between Davis's involvement as well as Miles's involvement, just because the fact that apparently, according to investigators, Davis was the one that fired the shot that actually killed Harris, but Miles was the one that provided the gun to Davis that belonged to Miles. So is there a discrepancy between that and what types of evidence the government is going to be putting forth in this trial? I definitely think that Davis's criminal liability and potential for a much more lengthier sentence is much higher than that of Darius Miles. The reason is Davis is the one who actually shot the gun into the vehicle, which caused obviously the death of Ms. Harris. Under the statute in a capital case in Alabama, That is obviously is eligible for the death penalty. However, if he's convicted, he would face a minimum of 30 years in prison day for day before he's eligible for release. So he can get 30 years 
all the way up to the death penalty. Darius Miles will be charged as a principal. Why? Because he provided the firearm, which was used to commit those, those killings. He doesn't have the same, well, I don't have the intent. I don't know what was going on that Brandon Miller has. Darius Miles was there the whole time and was the individual who texted Brandon Miller to bring the firearm. So we had a very good idea as to what was actually going to happen. And that's why he also, even though he did not fire the weapon that killed Miss Harris, he provided the gun and as such can be charged as a principal under the same offense. So based on obviously your expertise in the criminal field, do you think that Miles's attorneys should, you know, try and strike a deal with the prosecution on this case? Or do you think at this point, based on all the information that we publicly have, you know, he may be able to get off on all charges? Um, I know that Miles's attorneys said that their client, meaning Miles, is innocent and he looks forward to his day in court. But would you recommend that path at this point or kind of wait and see what the discovery process also reveals in the future as they get more into it? What I can tell you is you are never going to get the best deal from the district attorney this early in the case. Right now, they think they're on top of the world. They've obviously got over the preliminary hearing with the judge and the grand jury will return an indictment for capital murder for both charges. However, as the case goes on, there's going to be more and more facts that allow the attorneys a better idea as to what actually happened. Because if there's evidence that shows the vehicle that Ms. Harris was in fired the firearm first, both Mr. Miles and Mr. Davis have a very strong self-defense case. Remember, Alabama is a standard ground state. There is no duty to retreat from any situation, no matter what other states have. You have no duty retreat from your house or your workplace. Alabama, you have no duty to retreat ever. So if the evidence shows later that that vehicle fired the gun first and Mr. Davis responded, I don't know if Mr. Miles is going to want to plead to anything because a jury very well will find him not guilty based on self-defense. Objectively, throughout the country, I obviously cover a lot of cases for law and crime and see numerous self-defense cases. They have become objectively much more difficult to prove in the United States. You essentially start with the presumption that that individual acted in self-defense and acted properly. And a jury, unless it's so blatantly obvious that that individual wasn't acting in self-defense, a jury is not usually going to second-guess somebody in a situation where they were in a life-or-death situation. In this case, both of the defendants have admitted to police that they saw the gun in the victim's vehicle and noted that they could have left the area before getting the gun delivered, before shooting, but instead they chose to come back, they turned off their vehicle lights, they stopped and they ran around the back of the car allegedly in an arc shape towards the driver's side and then fired saying, you know, I told you I was going to get you. That's apparently what Davis said to the victims. So how would Stand Your Ground fit in with that set of facts if we're to believe that that's what happened? Remember, all sets of facts are, we're never going to know the full story until a jury is sworn and testimony is given in court. But based on those facts, that doesn't sound like somebody who was responding to an incident. That sounds like somebody who made a conscious decision that he was going to do somebody harm. 
Remember, in self-defense cases, stand your ground cases, you are not allowed to bring the harm into the situation. You can't cause this incident to happen and then be like, well, I was then acting in self-defense. That's not how it works. You have to be responding to the actions of somebody else lawfully for you to be able to get that defense and be able to argue that. Yeah, and going off of that point too, how important are timelines in a case, especially like this, where you have the allegation that Miles texted Miller to bring his gun to where they were? We've not, we're not sure what exactly was going on with Miles and Davis and Ms. Harris's car at that time. So what do you think, you know, both the prosecution and the defense are, are looking at here? And what timeline are, would you be looking for to give Miles kind of the best case and the best case scenario for his defense? Well, one of the things you're definitely looking at with a timeline is finding out at what point whether Darius Miles was acting in self-defense, essentially trying to prevent a situation, or he kind of knew what was going to happen and took steps to prepare for it. Those alleged text messages led us into the minds of, of what Darius Miles was thinking. Obviously, I too had to look up on Urban Dictionary what some of those things that he was saying are. And if he's saying that before this incident occurred, it might be difficult for his attorneys to turn around and say, it's like, well, he was just acting in self-defense. I don't know. I think based on what I'm seeing there is that kind of knew what was going to happen. And he took steps to make sure to shore up what he intended to do the whole time. Initially, Johnson fires back out of the vehicle and hits Davis in the shoulder. Miles then calls Tuscaloosa police later that night and says, hey, my friend showed up at my apartment. He's been shot. I have no idea what happened. Then the story changes that Miles and his girlfriend went down to the strip and picked up Davis. Then the story changes that Miles was there the entire time. He had the gun delivered by Miller. He moved his girlfriend out of the way. How did those things kind of fit into maybe the motivation from the district attorney's office to prosecute this case in terms of giving Miles any sort of deal? Does a changing story affect those elements? And does it affect his credibility going forward? What I can tell you is this. The truth is very easy to remember. A lie changes on a daily basis. When you're prosecuting a case, you're looking at, all right, has that story changed? Does it make sense? Is it consistent? Or does it any kind of situation, every other fact, the story changes on a daily basis? Look at the Alex Murdoch case. It sounds like those facts and situations change on a daily basis. And that's what you're kind of looking at here with uh, Darius Miles. If you have, when you're doing, handling this type of case, you'll say one story and that's your story to the end of the case, because that's what you're going to be locked in on. Because anything, as we know, as attorneys, anything we say to law enforcement or say to somebody else can be introduced against us at trial. So Darius Miles is kind of stuck in what his story is. If that changes or evolves over the length of the case, that shows a real inconsistency and something a jury is like, I don't know if I necessarily believe what you had to say. So going back to Brandon Miller, because I think that was really the biggest development in the case as of yesterday. And I know that the district attorney told a news outlet that Miller isn't facing charges because there's nothing we could charge him with according to the law. Do you agree with that statement or do you think there is a workaround, 
according to the Alabama statute that, you know, they may or may not have enough evidence to charge him with aiding and abetting or something of that nature based on, you know, if they receive or see more discovery that could possibly pinpoint a crime onto him. So under Alabama code 1975, subsection 13A, accountability for behavior of another, an accessory. A person is accountable for the behavior of another constituting an offense if and when the intent to promote or assist the commission of the offense. One, he or she procures, induces, or causes the other person to commit the offense. Two, he or she aids or abets the other person in committing the offense or having a legal duty to prevent the commission of the offense. He or she fails to make an effort he or she is legally required to make. So obviously on Twitter yesterday, Taryn posted about the intent element, and obviously I jumped on it as well. Because when I heard about Brandon Miller's involvement, that was my first thought. I was like, well, he provided the firearm. The firearm was later used in the commission of a capital murder. An argument can be made that he was absolutely an accessory before the fact. Based on what the district attorney is saying, it didn't sound like they were going to move forward with charges. I don't know if I necessarily agree. Obviously, they are the ones who make the charging decisions. And I definitely think, like we discussed earlier and what I've seen in various news outlets, the issue is intent. They would have to prove that Brandon Miller intended to participate in the commission of this crime. So the thinking being, we see the text messages and he's told to bring a gun. It doesn't necessarily lay out why. Obviously, it's like you feel threatened. I think that's what the interpretation was. But it wasn't late. I was like, hey, these guys, we're going to go after these guys. I need you to bring this gun to be able to us uh, carry that out. If that's what the text messages said and Brandon Miller shows up with the firearm, I think it's a completely different situation. But since his attorneys potentially would look at the situation and be like, well, uh, he brought the gun, but he didn't really know what was going on. That intent element, I think, is what the district attorney couldn't get over. It's like at this time, I think that could change as the case evolves. But based on just the preliminary findings, they don't find the statute applicable, which obviously is a little surprising, but that's their decision to make. Do you think that, you know, the fact that Brandon Miller's car was one of the two that was blocking the road that contained the car that Ms. Harris was in? Could that be potentially used as circumstantial evidence if, you know, they were to potentially charge him? And what else do you think they could use? Is there a difference between the fact that Miller brought what is said to be Miles's gun to Miles as opposed to Miller bringing Miles his own gun? Is there kind of a difference there as well? Absolutely. For me, the uh, car element using to essentially block Miss Harris's car is definitely something that would presume would be introduced circumstantial evidence as being accessory. Hearing those facts, I'm like, okay, even if you don't believe that the gun element, that is accessory after the fact, trying to ensure that the individuals are blocked in, they have no means of escape, and essentially helping Mr. Miles and Mr. Davis commit these essentially capital murder charges. I definitely think that it would have been different if Miller brought his own gun because it's like he couldn't argue that he was essentially bringing back Miles's property to him. It's like, oh, he told me to meet him there. I don't really know what was going on, but I brought it to him. It's like, I need you to bring your gun. And then it, that's a different situation because usually a reasonable person is like, why do you need my gun? 
and then right. he gets more information and he falls through, that could potentially be subsection three that I just, just described, having a legal duty to prevent the commission of the offense. Because if he was made aware of what Davis and Mr. Miles were doing, he would have a legal duty to stop it. Otherwise, he could be charged as an accessory. Yeah, I do think that, that makes a difference that Miller's not bringing Miller's gun. And I saw some really pretty gross discourse, honestly, from Alabama fans yesterday. It was like, my father-in-law brought me his gun one time and he knew that I was going to go deer shooting with it. Of course, like uh, there should be some trust. That's nonsense. Listen, like you get a text at 1.30 in the morning to bring somebody's piece down to a place where you know that people have been drinking, where they've been carrying on, where it's possible that tempers have gotten escalated, where somebody tells you that there's an altercation going on. I think you have a fair idea of why they need their gun, either to brandish it for their own protection or to brandish it to intimidate or to you know make a, a situation go away in whatever form. So I thought that the bending over backwards to kind of explain it away by some people who would like their basketball team to maintain their top status this year was pretty gross. And, and I hope that that sports doesn't make me like that. But I want to jump back to this intentionality because you've touched on it. I talked about this yesterday on Twitter. I agree that that is where you decide whether you're going to move forward on charges with Miller because, and the, the Alabama statute makes this pretty clear. The onus is on the state to prove this. So I, I mentioned motivation earlier when it comes to miles and lying. Oates says that Miller has been truthful with the police the entire time. So maybe you know, the state isn't so motivated to, to come down hard on a kid for being honest. But in this case, intentionality, the Alabama code defines it as when his or her purpose is to cause that result or engage in that conduct. So here, the result is that Jamia Harris is dead. But Miles doesn't text Miller and say, hey, I need to shoot this woman. So how does it work? Like, does the actual result have to be exactly what he intended? Like say Miller really did just intend for Miles to protect himself. Does it qualify if the ultimate result is something different? I definitely think that it needs to be foreseeable. And I think that's what the prosecution would make that analysis on. More thing about depraved indifference murder. Did the actions, were they foreseeable? Could you foresee somebody getting serious bodily injury or death? Based on those text messages that Darius Miles texted Brandon Miller, was it foreseeable that Darius Miles would give that firearm or use that firearm himself to commit a capital murder? And based on not really understanding any of the lingo, and I think law enforcement must have went over it numerous times, and they didn't know it. As we know, they had to look at Urban Dictionary. And I think they made a judgment call. It's like, we're going to present this to a jury. and we're kind of on the fence about it. And if you're the prosecution, you're the ones who actually bring the charges, you have to prove it. If you have a sense of pause, what do you think a jury who doesn't spend their entire lives trying to prove a standard of beyond a reasonable doubt? I think they're going to have the same pause and you're going to walk yourself right into either a motion for judgment of acquittal or straight not guilty from a jury. So Matt, to be clear, this decision was not made because the prosecutor went to Alabama law, right? This There is murkiness in the situation 
that could give any reasonable person pause as to whether to bring these charges or not. Absolutely. When I reviewed it, I saw the same things that the intent element, it's that he could theoretically be charged with it, but also I could absolutely see why he couldn't be, that they wouldn't feel like they couldn't meet their standard, meet the standard of uh, burden of proof, because the language is just, like I said, so murky that you can't really ascertain what Darius Miles is trying to say. Had it not been essentially in code and it'd be like, yo, like I said, I got to shoot this person. I would absolutely think Brandon Miller would have been charged, whether it was his firearm or Darius Miles' firearm. But since it wasn't and he really didn't know and he showed up and didn't know what exactly was going on, I think that's why they made the decision. However, the car element, I think that's a completely different situation. And one that I think as the case progresses, the state attorney's office, district attorney's office might have a change of heart on that. The reason being is they're going to want to nail Mr. Davis to the wall. And they're going to want as many people testifying on their behalf who were there on the day in question as possible. And if they could charge Brandon Miller, they absolutely would. Why? Because then they could leverage a plea deal and Brandon Miller could testify for the prosecution to essentially nail Mr. Davis to the wall. In tort specifically, and Steph, I also asked you this, so if you want to jump in, there is a doctrine, transferred intent. Like if you are about to sit down and I pull the chair out, I want you to fall on your butt, but instead you fall backwards and violently hit your head, I could be held liable for that because I intended to pull the chair out and cause you some sort of harm and you ended up getting hurt worse. Does transferred intent apply here at all? So asking like a similar question, the intent is to deliver Miles his own gun for him to do whatever with it, but ultimately the outcome is different. Would transferred intent apply as as a possible way to charge and, and prosecute Miller? Probably not. I think the only way transferred intent might come into play is if Mr. Davis intended to shoot the other individual in the vehicle, but had hit Miss Harris. Like, well, I didn't mean to hit her. I was trying to hit him. That's not going to fly. The reckless discharge of a firearm is nobody's going to care in a jury. It's like you murdered this person. You knew firing could hard do somebody else harm. Uh, the individual you were trying to hit, you missed and you hit somebody else. It doesn't matter. You committed a murder. And arguably that's what happened, right? The altercation where it really gets elevated, according to police testimony, is when Davis and Cedric Johnson start discussing and and Johnson tells them to move on. And then he comes back and allegedly fires through the driver's side. It's the, the victim that is in the passenger side that gets hit in the left cheek. That is arguably what what happens here. I think it's definitely an interesting case for us to follow just because now there are so many other circumstances that are coming into play here. And obviously, Brandon Miller um, is the star of the Alabama basketball team right now. And so, you know, when they say that there could be a trial in the court of public opinion, you know, if Brandon Miller gets more involved in this case, then potentially, you know, it could have a negative or you know, alternative outcome on whatever happens in the trial in the future. 
but I think overall, you know, Matt, you provided excellent context and explanations for us to fully understand, you know, what all of this circumstantial evidence and what the police and other detectives testimony really means to kind of wrap it up. I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see, like I said, and we look forward to obviously having you on again, our resident DA for any and all civil and criminal cases that may come up in the future. Thank you. And absolutely. It's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. I anticipate we're going to have this case will eventually end in a trial that uh, Darius Miles and Mr. Davis are going to argue self-defense. So we'll see what the evidence presented and what a jury ultimately decides. Matt, if you had to put a percentage on it, do you think that uh, Miller will be charged here? Based on what the district attorney is saying, I'd probably put it at about 30, 40% right now. I think that their initial finding is no, but like I said, always things come up in discovery that changes things. He hasn't been arrested, so there's no speedy trial clocks or anything that have been set in stone, and they could change their opinion at any time based on the testimony. So I'd say 30, 40% at most. Like you guys said, we'll continue to follow it. We did want to put something out from the legal perspective. And so we called our expert on this. Um, there's there's a lot of talk about it from the uh, the sports angle. And obviously we could engage in that also. I think it's a PR nightmare for Alabama, but um, for us, really important So for people to be knowledgeable about what the law actually says. You know, I, I saw some claims yesterday that this was just media sensationalism. And I, I think that this couldn't be further from that. Obviously, there are going to be people that are that are going to be popping off about this and and they just want to have loud opinions. But the fact is that the Miller news was news yesterday. That was new to the public. It wasn't made clear before that Miller had been involved at all, let alone this involved. And so for us to not talk about it, particularly in the position that we hold at the intersection of sports and law would have been very wrong. So uh, I'm glad that we were uh, able to, to discuss how the law is actually going to apply here. And like you guys said, we'll continue to follow it. And you can continue to follow us along at, uh, at Con Detrimental on Twitter. We're also on LinkedIn for myself, Taryn Sharma at TK Sharma Law. Matt Timpanic is at Timpanic Law. That's T-Y-M-P-A-N-I-C-K. And Stephanie Weisenberger, you're at Steph the Lawyer. Steph? I actually recently changed my Twitter back to the old S Weisenberger underscore. Ah, the classic. I know, but who knows? Stay tuned. Next time, maybe I'll jump around a little more. Let me know which name you like better. (laughs) Uh, Matt, anything else to plug? No, I definitely think that... uh... Alabama fans need to kind of take a step back and look at this situation. This is a capital murder case. This isn't some low-level DUI. Like you said, we're not creating news. This is a situation where a star basketball player was there at the time of this alleged incident in question and provided the firearm that was used. It's only natural for us to discuss that. And however the evidence leads and however the case proceeds, Alabama fans need to understand that there's something bigger than basketball, bigger than having your star player in a March Madness. It's about the human element and making sure justice is served. Well, thanks as always, Matt. And uh, on behalf of the Dans, Evan, our producer extraordinaire, Mike Lawson, Holly, Jason, the entire 
Conduct Detrimental team. We'll see you next time on another episode of Conduct Detrimental.